coming to you from fabulous Las Vegas. The right side is the winning side. The late move is the correct move. Sports betting capital of the world. We all know when a sharp like me weighs in, the lines move. It's a party for your ears. <laughs> This is The Buffet with Chad and Scooch. I want to buy that guy a buffet. Hello, welcome to The Buffet Podcast with Chad and Scooch from the Action Network. Scooch is off this week. We are dedicating this podcast to the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. We do it at least once a year. When I say we, I mean I. And in all the years I was at ESPN, um, and I was involved, and ESPN was involved with the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. We would do a podcast every year. Uh, highlighting the conference. Today's guests are going to be later on in the show, Jeff Ma, famed gambler from Bringing Down the House, now super bigwig at Twitter, still very involved in the sports betting community. He's going to be on a panel with me at the conference uh, this Friday. But first up, the superstar of the conference, the GM of the best team in the NBA as we speak on a Tuesday morning, Subject of a Michael Lewis book, and most importantly, Daryl Morey, guest of the podcast, uh, creator with Jessica Gelman of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks. Thanks for a man, Chad. I think Obama's the superstar of the conference this year, so I think we're all... He is. So he, I think we're all second story. fiddle. Um, we, um, you know, I... We, I, I joined this new company, the Action Network, which was started by the Chernin Group back in October. And I joined in September and we launched in January. And uh, I had called Jess in, I think, before we launched um, and maybe in December and was like, you know, the folks at Sloan who come are like, our core audience, right? Like we are trying to reach people who want to use analytics and data and reporting and research to make smarter decisions about how they're going to be sports investors for lack of a better term. And so I want to get in front of them. And, you know, I know when I was at ESPN and we ran the magazine and we were involved in the conference, we'd always get the magazines and the gift bags. And so I was like, Jess, what do we do to get in the gift bag? And she's like, it's a sponsorship. And she tells me what it costs. I'm like, all right, we can do that. And she goes, by the way, you know, the main stage sponsorship is still open. And she tells me what it costs. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot for us where, you know, we're still a startup company. She's And she's like, I'm telling you, I think you're going to want to do it. And this was a Friday. And Jessica's amazing. And we've been friends for a while. And I'm like, all right, let's just do it. Like, I'm just going to trust her. And so uh, later that day is when you announce on Twitter and then Jessica calls to tell me that President Obama is going to be the speaker on the main stage, which is just fantastic because I love that now <laughs> we this small startup sports betting company is going to be the main stage sponsor for the conference in which he's speaking at. Under promise, over deliver. That's that's a, <laughs> a good model well, in life. So She certainly did that, and so we're appreciative of the opportunity. And uh, by the way, I have to remind people, follow the Buffet Pod on Twitter. Uh, Mike Grinnell would be remiss if I didn't offer that. So Daryl, the premise for this is um, the risks you've taken. It's a segment we call You Bet Your Life. And so naturally, yesterday I saw, you know, I got my alert that Simmons had put out a new podcast and 
he's got you on and he's going to do your career path. And so I listened to it and was anxious the whole time because I'm like, oh my God, he's going to do all the stuff. Fortunately, I don't think he got to what you and I are going to talk about, um, which was basically as simple as this. Tell me about the biggest risk you've taken and what happened next. Yeah, so let me set the stage a little bit. I'm in my first year uh, officially as the GM of the uh, of the Houston Rockets. Uh, we're we're having uh, uh, you know a very you know very solid solid year on our way to winning mid fifties with uh, Rick Adelman as the coach, and it's around the trade deadline and you know, we're obviously we we our strategy at the trade deadline is basically kick every tire. Now, this may not be a good strategy. There are some pluses and minuses to it, but we've we've basically focused on deal flow, and then for you know versus sort of op maximizing every deal. And one one deal that came up that trade deadline, uh, I was extraordinarily nervous to do, meaning. Uh, essentially, our starting point guard that year was Rafer, Rafer Alston, uh, and obviously we were playing extremely well. I think we were maybe the three or the four seed at the time, and a player we had our eye on. We were hoping to draft uh, the year the year before, or sorry, maybe two years before, um, was Kyle Lowry, and one deal that we were working on was essentially trading Rafer Alston. Uh, it ended up being a three-way where Rafer was going to Orlando. Uh, Orlando was going to send a first-round pick to Memphis, and then Memphis would send us Kyle Lowry. Now, now that sounds like, oh, of course that's a good deal. But at the time, Kyle Lowry had never played for Memphis. He was the third-string point guard at the time. And we were trading our starting point guard with 30 games to go in the season uh, in a – strong playoff season uh, for a third string point guard. And I distinctly remember sitting with Rick Adelman in the office and basically him saying, are, you know, are you crazy? We're, we're going to trade our starting point guard in the season when we're doing this well. Uh, but, you know, he basically was like, hey, look, it's, you, you've got the job. If you vouch for it, uh, it's good. Uh, you know, we had a, Assistant coach at the time is with us now again, Brett Gunning, who actually coached at Villanova, who was also instrumental in sort of stepping up and making Rick comfortable with the move. But doing a move like that in the middle of my uh, first year officially as a GM uh, was probably the biggest risk I took in my career. A lot of a lot of folks didn't know what uh, you know what uh, what to think of me. I obviously, was sort of an unknown guy coming from Boston. Uh, and so all the initial moves are extremely magnified when you get a job as, you know, folks like Sam Hinkie found out and others like, you know, you don't get as long of a runway as you, as you might want. So if things don't work out, uh, it can go bad fast. So that was probably the biggest risk I can remember in my career. Uh, and if it hadn't gone well, I, I might not be talking to you. Um, so that's, uh, I, that's probably the biggest one I can recall. What made you comfortable making the decision? So there are a bunch of factors. I would say 
One was we really thought Kyle was going to be better. And even in his very limited time, I think he had played for sure less than a thousand minutes. I want to say somewhere between 300 and 600 minutes he had, he had gotten in Memphis. He did play very well in those minutes. And this was back when basketball hadn't really still figured out uh, what pioneers like John Hollinger did, which is, you know, if you play well, even in, in shorter minutes, you know, often you can expand those into a larger role. And so we we were able to take advantage of that arbitrage. So he did play well in the time that he did get a chance. Obviously, we were able to watch all the video of him playing, so I felt comfortable there. Second, we felt a little bit comfortable because we had some depth at the guard position that year. Uh, we felt like even though, even though Rafer was the starter, that uh, if Kyle didn't work out, uh, that Aaron Brooks could give us solid minutes. So that was another thing that, that hedged the risk. But to be fair, if you go back and look at that deal, it was a head-scratcher for the local media. Uh, it's just generally not done where you trade your starting point guard, your quarterback, essentially, of your team in the middle of a 51 season where you know so much is magnified. And, and a veteran coach who came here to win right away, so in Rick Adelman, so... Uh, though I think the key factors were that, yeah, both both we felt good about our evaluation and and also that we were a little bit hedged that we had some depth at the guard. So what happened next? Yeah, so what happened next? Obviously, Kyle went on to went on to be an all star, not with us, but with Toronto. But uh, Kyle was just a, a major contributor to that team uh, against the. We took the Lakers. We lost Yao Ming and Tracy McGrady that year in the playoffs. Uh, first, we lost Tracy. Then we lost Yao in the second round of the playoffs. We lost to Kembe Matumbo, our other backup center, in the first round of the playoffs to Portland. Uh, and um, we, the Lakers won the title that year, actually won the title against the Orlando team with Rafer Alston as the starting point guard of the Orlando team. Uh, so the trade actually worked out for Orlando, too, you could argue. Um, and Kyle was very instrumental in getting us. We were the only team to take the Lakers to seven games that year uh, in the year they won the title. And that was without Yao Ming or Tracy McGrady. So, um, you know, it obviously worked out amazingly, which is maybe one reason why I'm talking about this story. I think uh, folks are biased to maybe talk about the ones that worked out. Um, Yeah, I can, I can definitely name ones that didn't work out, uh, you know, if we have more time. So, we got plenty of time. So tell me, because it's actually interesting. A lot of people who come on and do this segment will talk about how things went egregiously and horribly wrong. Um, what it taught them about the failure, but also it led them into some place where they wouldn't be sort of the massive success they are if they hadn't taken that completely wrong turn at one time or another. Like one guy came on and talked about how he quit his job because he wanted to move to Florida and didn't like what he was doing and took a job, ended up taking a job as a paint salesman that ultimately led him to selling paint to a prison in Florida. And he was sitting in the room trying to sell this special kind of paint that they were pitching. And he thought to myself, what happened? Like, what am I doing? And like that day he quit his job and went back to find himself in the career that he was in before, but realizing how much he loved it. And now he's flourished and become majorly successful and sort of has built an incredible life only because he took a risk to quit the job and then flame out considerably 
at the new job that he took. Well, it's a much better story than mine. <laughs> mine just worked out. Well, it doesn't have Kyle Lowry. So, yeah, so the next key moment actually also relates to Kyle Lowry and involves quite a bit of failure. So I think uh, so I think maybe that's an interesting segue. So that team that took the Lakers to seven games, I believe it was in 09, um, was uh, – you know, was actually the peak of Yao Ming and Tracy McGrady's career here. Um, neither of them uh, played significant minutes in the NBA after that. Uh, Yao Ming came back uh, one more year and, and played like five games. Uh, Tracy McGrady uh, ended up playing a couple places, but, but, you know, obviously injuries derailed both of them. So we found ourselves uh, in the early, you know, 2010 range, 2010 to 2012 range, essentially trying to rebuild with a mandate to not actually ever be bad. Um, and to be fair, even though being bad is the best way to do it, um, we had a team with just just packed with very solid players like Louis Scola and Shane Battier and Kyle Lowry that that you know t- you know basically trying to take the path of getting a high draft pick was going to be extraordinarily difficult. Uh, so we were forced to say, how are we going to turn our team around uh, without, you know, without actually getting really bad, like losing, you know, below 30 or winning below 30 games, which is mostly what it requires. And so we essentially uh, decided to just take tons of very risky bets. And we did that with mostly, mostly really terrible failure, <laughs> frankly. Um <laughs> So a lot of those moves in there all all didn't work out, with the exception of yet another Kyle Lowry trade. Uh, but I'll, I'll I'll first walk through the very risky moves we did that didn't work out. So we traded a a first round pick to the Nets for Terrence Williams because Terrence was picked I think 12th the year before, uh, sort of flamed out with the Nets, and we thought he was much better than that, and we knew we were going to never pick high, so trading our pick, which I think was going to land somewhere in the 15 to 20 range for a guy we thought was, you know, maybe the fifth, sixth or seventh best player in the draft the year prior seemed like a great idea. Uh, worked out really horribly, uh, never turned the corner and, and frankly was something, you know, I should have been smarter about anytime a team is willing to give up on a first round pick, you know, one year in, you know, they're sitting on way more information than you are. Uh, but the reality is we were a little bit desperate to find high upside bets in a in a in a strategy where we were gonna never pick high. So he was he was one. We were able to trade our way into three first round picks one year. I think this was eleven. Uh, and we, we took uh, no it might have been twelve. We took three players. We took all high risk, sort of high return players, with the most famous one being Royce White, who we thought again was a top you know, five, six, seven talent in the league, but uh, had 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 you know obvious had had some off the court um, you know issues uh, that we were willing to bet on because you know we again needed high upside players. Uh, you know, we took Royce White, we took Terrence Jones, uh, both out of the league now, both high high risk high return guys. Both of them did not pan out. We then. 
signed Jeremy Lin to a, to a very large contract, um, knowing that he was playing at an extremely high level, knowing that it was in a very small sample size of obviously the very famous Lin Sanity run. Uh, Jeremy actually worked out incredibly well, um, but it just wasn't, uh, wasn't for us <laughs> necessarily. He, he obviously had the great run of the Knicks, and he's gone to be an extremely productive player in the league, but, uh, you know, here he, um, he didn't work out for reasons I'll go into, um, in a second really weren't his fault. Um, and so those are all like the high risk, high return moves we did over and over trying to, to hit one and basically rolling snake eyes, uh, every time. And then the one worked out was when we traded Cal Lowry out and I'll go into that, but I'll pause since I've just been rambling on in case you had any questions, Chad. No, no, I want to hear. I want to hear sort of the the Kyle Lowry and the Jeremy Lin sort of um, resolutions. But I also have so many questions about Royce White because I remember when you guys did that, and I think when I was at the magazine, we did a story about um, when he was in college, and fascinating player, so open about sort of what was going on in his life. What is the calculus in a decision like that? Again, I wish there was more calculus to it than we were desperately chasing any player who we thought had all-star potential. And if you're not picking high, you know you're going to take some – you're buying some risk, like in a big way. Um, with, uh, with Terrence Williams, it was, you know, the risk that they're sitting on more information in, at the Nets in terms of his ability, his work ethic – uh, how he interacts with teammates, things like that. With Jeremy Lin, we were buying big risk with sample size. With Royce White, we were buying big risk with, um, you know, with uh, you know off the court uh, p- potential issues. With um, with Terrence Jones, we were buying you know risk in terms of what you had heard from the background in him from his coaching staff. So um, there was we were basically buying risk. You're always buying significant risk when you're chasing talent outside of where they're normally picked the top 10 in the draft. Uh, and it's really which, which problems are you're hoping are less than other people anticipate. The market obviously has valued them lower for a reason. Which one do you think has the best chance of fixing itself? If that makes sense. So what happened, what was the first with, with Jeremy Lin and then second with Kyle Lowry, what resolutions, yeah, so our biggest hit, our biggest hit, actually in this whole period was we traded we traded Kyle Lowry out to Toronto, who needed a starting point guard. We knew we were just sort of treading water as a 500 team, and they were willing to give us a first round pick, but we we insisted it be structured in a unique way that had never been done in the NBA. Most of the time, first round picks are traded, and you say, "Hey, I'll give you this first round pick for the player," but if the pick ends up in the top 10, we get to keep it. Um, and you'll get our pick the, the next year until we're not in the top 10. That's how picks had been structured every year until this trade. When we talked to Toronto, we were able to structure the pick because they were very interested in Kyle. And correctly, by the way, he went on to be an all-star for multiple years with them. And instead of it being, if it's in the top 10, you don't get the pick. It's, you only get the pick if it's in the top 14, essentially. So it's a, it was basically a reverse protected pick 
that was guaranteed to be a high pick in the draft. And we thought that that would be a really useful trade piece, either as a trade piece or obviously we were looking for a high pick in the draft. So uh, that trade ended up being actually the key the key piece in the, in the James Harden deal. We gave up a lot in the James Harden deal. Uh, but the number one asset that Oklahoma City was interested in was that pick that we traded Cal for. So in many ways, my career was essentially made on these two sort of risky bets. One, trading our starting point guard in the middle of a playoff run uh, for a guy who's third string. And then two, trading out Cal Lowry, our, our unquestioned best player at the time, uh, for a question mark draft pick that then ended up being the key piece in the Harden trade later. High roller Maury. That's what they call you. What's that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, as you know, it's a, we have a great team of people. You've met a lot of them, Chad. And, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's a whole system here. It's not, uh, I just happen to be the one they, they get mad at when things go bad and sometimes get too much credit when it goes well. I was surprised you didn't bring up the Harden deal. That did not, that was not a risk to us. You know, we felt extraordinarily confident on our evaluation of him that he was going to be a player we could build around. We did not know he'd be this good at all. I mean, he's, he's going to be a hall of fame player and probably the best player in the league right now Uh, that you can't anticipate, but we felt very confident. He had a high probability to be an all-star. The, um, you mentioned something earlier about, the minutes that Kyle Lowry had played and that no one had really discovered that you can sort of glean a lot from a short, a small sample size. How much of when you're making any of these decisions, because you are so steeped in analytics and like Simmons, I thought the podcast that, that Simmons aired yesterday and you're going back to sort of the Bill James conversation and you're, you're working at stats and, you know, I grew up in Highland park, you know, so I know all about stats and sort of what was happening in that area at that time. Um, I thought that was fascinating, but as you've, as you've, your career has gone on, how much of the human element takes over? You know, there's been a lot of conversation from Billy Bean about sort of the way he's transitioned and moved out of just thinking statistically. How much is that playing into your risk factors when you're making decisions on deals or draft picks or anything else? Well, yeah, when you're a team like ours, it's very good. The, the locker room, type elements, leadership elements, the type that the media talks about a lot. So you don't, you know, as a team, you don't really need to talk about it much because it's, it's, pro- it's generally overvalued by the marketplace and the media. But when you're a very good team like we are, those, those, those variables become fairly valued, I would say, meaning they become big factors. We're very careful when we were, we're a good team to not add any elements that some might sort of mess up uh, what we have going. So we didn't do any trades this deadline. When we added Joe Johnson and Brandon Wright, it was after a lot of research that these are two guys that will integrate well with our team, our coaching staff, our style of play, things like that. So I think when you're very good, you take take less risks on those things. When you're when you're and, and people perceive that we were like necessarily not sensitive to those issues because during the period I was just talking about from 2010 through 2013, roughly in there, we were, you know, I had to, we were basically telling fans, look, don't buy a Jersey. If you buy a Jersey, buy it with your name on the back. Cause that's going to be the only <laughs> safe one. 
Uh, and the reality is that's right. If you're not a good team, like, why have stability when your team isn't good? Like, to me, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, the risk is that you are too complacent in that period. Um, so, yeah, so we, you know, we, uh, that's sort of when, because it was early in my career, that was sort of when people sort of started to say, oh, the Rockets just shuffle players in and out. And, and that was true during that period, but it was the right, it was the right plan at the time. And now the right plan is to do what we did, which is, you know, not make any trades with the trade deadline. Well, look, it's working out for you so far. I'm glad for so you far, guys. Long way to go. <laughs> you know, I hope it continues. Daryl, I'm going to see you this week, the Sloan Conference uh, at MI, at uh, the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference um, starts on Friday. It's Friday and Saturday. People can follow it along on Twitter. Um, people will probably be able to stream a lot of the um, stuff after the fact with some cool videos. Uh you know, it's a huge success story. Like in the sports world, um, it's become such an event. It's a Super Bowl-esque atmosphere in terms of people you meet, people you see, the conversations that are had. Uh, what you and, and Jessica have done is pretty impressive. So congratulations, and I'll see you this week. Well, I got a shout-out to the MIT students who uh, who really make the whole thing go and uh, appreciate the kind words. And, and the fact that you help us every year is, is very appreciated. So thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Joining me now on The Buffet with Chad and Scooch, one of my fellow panelists on the Sloan Sports Analytics Gambling uh, panel <clears throat> this week at the conference, Jeff Ma. Jeff, how you doing, buddy? So that's what I've become to you, just another one of your fellow panelists. You, I used to be introduced as like one of your friends. What's going on? Well, there? I I was going to get into more of it. Like I wanted to give people the top line here. I don't know if they're all that interested in like personal relationships. Well, I'm very sensitive these days, Chad. So it's 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 always good to know that we still have, we're still friends in the industry. Uh, I, I would say friends inside and outside the industry. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, well, my friend, I'm going to see you this week, and um, the panel is going to be really good because it's going to have you. It's going to have Ted Olson, who is the former Solicitor General of the United States, who argued the case for, I believe it was George Bush over Al Gore in uh, 2000, um, that ultimately had George Bush become president. Uh, And he most recently argued the case in front of the Supreme Court to have, um, in, in favor of on the side of New Jersey, he was the lawyer for the state of New Jersey, arguing that they should be allowed to have sports betting. Um, so he's going to talk about that. Uh, you're going to be on the panel. And I feel like this is a good time to have this conversation because in your role at Twitter as sort of poobah of product, uh, you are smack dab in the middle of what could be a monumentally important tool once sports betting becomes legalized, how do you see Twitter activating against that? Well, well, one, I'm not Puba product. Um, that's actually a guy by the name of Keith Coleman, another guy by the name of Ed Ho, who kind of run that. I'm more Puba of data and data science and analytics, um, which obviously is uh, an important role, but not quite the same as Puba product. Now, that being said, obviously, I spend a lot of time with those guys, and we talk a lot about. Uh, the ramifications of different things. I mean, as Twitter, um, we our tagline or, or where we've gone the last couple of years has really been about to show you what's happening or to be what's happening. 
And what that means is that we've been focused a lot on the real-time aspect of things, being the first to get information. Um, it, it sort of simplified the use case around Twitter. And I think it dovetails really well with the idea of legalized sports betting because so much of sports information is being first to get that information, whether it's injury information or you know, coaching changes or, or personnel changes, anything like that. Um, you want to be the first to get it. And, and the the first used to be for, you know, like fantasy or just for the the pride or, you know, the the being able to say like, oh, I knew this first. Um, I don't know if you remember the whole like Rick Riley thing that was pretty embarrassing when he was on um, Monday Night Football and they, they accidentally oh, yeah. him saying like, yeah, yeah, like make sure everyone knows I, I got that first. Uh, but in, in the Twitter parlance, in, and especially in the world of sports gambling, there's a real financial reason to be first. Um, even now, you can see sports information, especially injuries, breaking on Twitter even before it's reflected in the line moves sometimes. And um, I think one of the things that is interesting to do is to watch how line moves, especially uh, in the NBA, um, where there are all, are all sorts of new sort of uh, trends around people sitting when you don't expect them to sit um, and, and just so much uncertainty around who's playing on any given day. Sometimes you see the market reflect the line move uh, before the injury is announced. And sometimes you see it happen twice where you'll see the line move and then you'll see the injury announcement go and you'll see the line move again, which either means the line, the market was pricing in some level of uncertainty and then when the, the certainty came out that they weren't playing, it reacted even more. Sometimes I believe it's really overreacting to a lot of the century information. So Fantasy Labs, which is a company that's in the Action Network, mm -hmm. has an NBA Twitter handle um, that is entirely built on what you're talking about. Like they are phenomenal at tracking down – DNPs or expected DNPs or injury news in the NBA because so much of daily fantasy obviously is driven by you know yeah. who's, who's not. No, I, I I follow them and I actually don't have um, notifications set for very many people. Um, they are one of the accounts that I do have notifications set for because I want to see who they're saying. But that's but the interesting thing is you know they're, they're sort of limited by you know the information that they're able to get through writers and things like that. And sometimes I do believe the market knows things even before they do, which which begs the question, like how do you continue to get even better information? Because I'm sure they're working very hard to get the best information. And as far as I know from like a definitive source, they are the best information, but the market can often reflect um, things even before they do. Like, you know, you'll see things priced into the market um, and they'll say like, oh, Embiid's still, um, you know, questionable for tonight. And it's like clear from the market that he is playing or that he isn't playing. Now, the market isn't always right, just like they aren't. They wouldn't always be right. Um, but it is interesting to know, like, what are the sources that the market is getting that even fantasy labs can't get? Well, I wonder, do you think that that is something that will ever be revealed? Like, is the market, you know... Betters are making decisions, and they're not – the people who are really moving the market aren't necessarily going to be releasing on Twitter what they know before they're making their bet. Um, I mean, yeah, obviously, like the people that are moving them – I mean, but, but you'd be surprised about like the people moving the markets because this day and age, 
uh, a lot of these sports books are really afraid of sharps. So there are people that will get labeled in certain you know, accounts like a Bet Chris or like a Pinnacle, the sharper books. And if you get labeled that way and you bet, um, you're automatically going to move the market, even if you don't really know anything. And they'll move the market a little bit against you. And then if someone else that you might happen to trade, uh, you know, picks with also bets in that same account or bets in that same uh, sports book, that'll move the market also. So I think sometimes we give the market too much credit. Um, and sometimes, sometimes people are just, you know, speculating and, and that'll move the market. So I, th I think one of the things that'll become more interesting if sports gambling or when sports gambling becomes legal is how much injury information is actually regulated in terms of like the leagues mandating that you have to announce at a certain time who is and who isn't playing. But I guess even in that case, people will still speculate before that announcement. My guess is sports books will try to like hold back limits until those announcements are made um, because they're they're petrified of of being beat by you know information asymmetry. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. What does that mean, information asymmetry? It just means that like they have information or someone has information that they don't. There's like when when you have information asymmetry, it just means that like the two sides, like I have information that you don't and therefore my opinion on something is different than your opinion because i have actual information that you don't like so, in markets in like a st stock market in the old days information asymmetry would cause you know opportunities in the stock market because like you know certain types of news about companies was not necessarily transparent or certain like economic trends weren't transparent so that would create information asymmetry you've had so many experiences in studying markets what would you say is from from first to last the most transparent of all the markets that you've studied and been a part of from financial markets to uh sports betting markets to i guess you could frame you know blackjack you know you were part of the bringing down the house crew in the movie 21 that was that was turned in the movie 21 like to sort of i guess card game markets i don't know how to but the well, card game markets aren't be. really markets right and those if you were going to talk about what was the most transparent they're certainly the most transparent because they're a closed system um, I think maybe what you're asking about is studying systems versus markets, systems that you can beat. And certainly blackjack is a closed system. The rules are predetermined. Um, everybody knows the rules. You can't change things. And then if you move into something like uh, poker, uh, where the rules are determined, but you don't necessarily know how the players are going to act at certain times. Um, and then you go to like betting markets and the stock market where you don't even know the rules, you don't know how people are going to act. Um, I guess in I guess in betting markets, you know the rules, like theoretically of winning and losing. In stock markets, you don't even know the rules, right? Like you you know you watch a stock and you watch their earnings come out, and you would think like, oh, the market's going to react a certain way, and they don't because that was already priced in and that kind of thing. Um, I think one of the reasons that the betting markets. And this, you know, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue definitively one way or the other between the betting markets and the stock markets, which ones are more transparent or which ones are more e are easier to understand. You can certainly make a case that like you don't really know what's going on in a publicly traded company. You don't like see the 
the stuff played out on the field. You don't get necessarily the same interviews and the same inside look that you do um, at sports teams. But in sports teams, you have sort of ever-changing um, landscape. I think that that is even more. It's even harder to understand, like because there's all these new players that have come into the. But I guess that's true of of, of stock market also, with you know high frequency trading and all the the things that have changed those markets. So again, like I'm basically arguing between the two of them, and I can't come up with a a, a real answer. So speaking of transparency, what do you do if Sports betting becomes legal, or even if it doesn't, listen, I love Twitter, and I'm on it all the time, and it's an invaluable tool for what I do, but from the information perspective, you talk about information asymmetry, it's easy for someone to start a rumor. Do you know what I mean? Like, how, yeah. do, you ma- how do you manage that? Because like, on Twitter, that could spread like wildfire, and all of a sudden, it's having a tremendous impact on a betting market. Yeah, I mean that is that is the notion. That is a very challenging thing um, to face. That both you know us and and Facebook and YouTube to some degree um, are having to deal with, which is like, what role should we play, or do we can, do we have to play in the world of this kind of concept of fake news or real news or validating news? Um, what I think that we have to do our best at is validating the source of where that information is coming from. Um, and we're spending a lot of time thinking about how our verification process works and maybe even like different sort of tiers of verification at some point. Um, but just this idea that, you know, verifying the source is the best way. It's hard for us to verify each piece of individual news, um, because it's, it's just, it's just impossible the way things go and how fast things go and whatnot. Um, the other thing is like, again, like you have to use leverage the market or lever- leverage the people in the community to help, you know, m- you validate some of these things also. Um, there are com- there are machine ways to try to do this, but generally it's it's definitely an unsolved problem that um, that we're all facing right now together. And we're all facing this as a as almost like as a world together, because if you look at what happened in the last election, which has obviously been well publicized, there was a lot of things going on that were sort of, you know, manipulations of different platforms. Um, and it was it was a challenging thing for, you know, for platforms like ourselves and Facebook to deal with. You know, Twitter was way ahead of the game on verification. Like that blue check mark kind of meant everything uh, in the beginning. And like getting the blue check mark, it felt like you were validated in a very specific way. Um, what more can you do to verify? Like, what is another level of verification for someone like me? Do you know what I mean? I've got a blue check mark. What more is there to verify? Well, I think it's more, not necessarily verification, but it's more just um, reputation around what you're known for, what you're good at, right? So that idea would be like, what, you know, like you're verified, but should I trust your opinion? when it comes to the best uh, sushi restaurant in New York or whether Hamilton is the best musical ever. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe your, your opinions, but really what you're verified for, what you're known for is, is sports and sports betting and, and that aspect of things. So that would be the area um, that we might be able to push into, which is actually trying to help, um, you know, verify you or, or give you reputation or, or help you have more reputation around specifically what you are known for. 
That's interesting. That'll be really interesting to bring it back to gambling because that is a that is an interesting that is reputationally uh, challenged. Like, how do you figure out if someone is someone that you want to verify and someone whose reputation and information is good? Yeah, I mean, it's again like this isn't. I'm not. Um, I, I don't want to speak ahead of anything we're doing. Like, this is not necessarily anything that we're planning on doing. Like, I'm not. I don't want to give up any of the the thoughts around what we're doing before we actually do them. But you know, when I when I envision personally what some of these things could look like going forward, um, it really is around you know just just what like just like when you when we before we went on air, we talked about gambling Twitter, right? And there are yeah. people that are known for giving out good gambling information or there are people that are known for you know the being the contrarians on gambling or whatnot and if you go on to twitter you don't really know what who to trust you don't really know who's good and who's bad and who's a tout and who's whatnot so certainly having some aspect of understanding like who you can trust and who you can't trust would be an interesting move um for you know like for for uh, for content generally, like to understand what content you could trust, and you know, to bring it all back to the idea of like sports betting become legal, it's it's just like the concept of having you know analysts in the stock market that you can trust that are are giving you good information. Boy, that would put Twitter at the white hot center of having a tangible impact on a nascent legal industry, right? Like if Twitter is bringing it upon itself to say, this guy's a tout, this guy's not a tout, this guy has good information, this guy doesn't have good information, that has a material impact on who people follow and who's making money and what a particular person or company can do in the market and their value in the market. It's, yeah, a, different, it's a different level of, of verification than, hey, I got you know 20,000 followers or 100,000 followers or 4 million followers, um, and there's value in that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting concept, certainly. I think that it's a challenging concept. Um, and it comes back to this idea of, you know, what's our role in this world, right? Are we this platform? Like, the thing about Twitter is it's a phenomenon, right? It's it's this amazing platform for communicating from one to many. Um, and all those things that you talked about, whether it's, you know, the number of followers you have or the, the actual like the, you know, the people that engage, how much engagement you get with your tweets, all that kind of stuff is, is stuff that like almost I when I look at a, a someone new, that's what I do. Like, what do you do? You click on their profile. You see how many followers they have. You kind of look at some of the things they tweeted. You look at who, the people that follow them. And that's what you use to decide what, you know, how much stock you want to put into what this person says. Um, so I would say to some degree, Twitter already has that. It's just like a manual process that you do yourself to figure out like whether this person is worth anything to you. All right. So we're going to do this panel on Friday morning. Mm -hmm. uh, it's at 930 at the uh, Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. You and I have been doing it together for years. Um, what do you who do you think will be the most interesting person on the panel and why? The panel is uh, you. It's. Um, Daniel Wallach, who's a lawyer who's been studying what's happening with um, the case that's going through the Supreme Court. Uh, 
And the woman who runs Sports Radar's domestic operations and Sports Radar's, you know, a data company that uh, is the official data provider for several leagues, including the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball. And then they sell that data to people who want it. But also in Europe, they have a massive operation in which they are selling data to bookmakers and part of their business is about integrity. And then Ted Olson, who argued the case in front of the Supreme Court on behalf of New Jersey. Uh, handicap for me, who you think will be the most interesting panelist and why? I can I vote for myself? You are not allowed to vote for yourself. Although I did have a conversation uh, with Ted Olson this morning, and he asked me, like, how does this panel go? And I was explaining to him, you know, some of the questions I'll ask and the topics we'll discuss. And I was giving him background on the people on the panel. And I said, I promise you at some point on the panel, Jeff will pose a challenging question that is going to make everybody on the panel have to think quickly about what their answer is going to be. So I um, did give you I did give you credit to Ted Olson as being a guy who that is, could potentially be the most interesting or troublesome person on the panel. So you reference me as both knowledgeable and troublesome, which is probably pretty accurate. Uh, in terms of like how the panel goes, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting just because the, those guys come from a very different background than I come from. And, and they're the ones that are sort of like have pushed around a lot of the, the legal uh, ramifications of this. Um, a lot of what I'm sort of interested in is, is the commercial uh, implications, i.e. like when this becomes um, legal and, you know, the, the NBA is out there talking about this, this concept of integrity fee. So, you know, the NBA has thrown out this concept of a 1% integrity fee, and this is either ignorant or disingenuous. Um, in both cases, I think we're in trouble if it's, if it's disingenuous, which I hope it is. What I'm saying is that they are actually – you know, anchoring the rest of the world in terms of thinking like a 1% fee is where they're starting. And they're going to come back and ask for like a 0.1% fee. And everyone's going to say, oh, well, that's not reasonable. 1% fee, there's just no way that a sportsbook could be competitive or make money in that case. And I've heard some like ridiculous things like, oh, well, maybe they should only do it off parlays. It's just, it's silly. Um, You know, I wrote an article a while back for Chalk that basically talked about the sort of top myths behind, you know, what will happen or the top sort of things that I predict will happen uh, when sports betting becomes legal. And I I think one of the things I said was just this idea that the leagues were going to be greedy right away. We're going to kind of ruin things um, and make it really hard, at least on the first pass, to make this successful. Um, I mean, I believe they should just sort of sit back and let this happen and benefit from, you know, the increased engagement, the increased marketing dollars, the increased people spending money in this area. Um, and maybe down the road, there could be some other ancillary revenue streams, but at least let this industry, you know, become, uh, you know, a real a real industry, not just like a nascent struggling industry struggling to fight with the illegal bookmakers. They are going to use some Trumpian negotiating tactics is what you're saying. Uh, Trumpian, Goodellian. I mean, I'm not sure if there's a big difference at this point. This is like a very um, challenging um, thing to get right. And I think again, like the thing that concerns me the most is like this shows a general lack of understanding of the sort of like industry itself and understanding like what the, you know, actual economics of bookmaking or, or, you know, actually sports books are. All right. Well, we're going to get into it on Friday. It's going to be a great panel. Um, Yeah. It's on Friday afternoon, Friday morning. I mean, 
It's going to be a great panel. I have no doubt you'll stir things up. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Um, I don't want us to get off the phone without talking about Bet the Process because between you and Rufus, it might be more IQ points than is generated by the rest of the sports betting community combined. And so please tell us that you're not going to go on permanent hiatus now that the NFL season is over and you have recapped the Super Bowl. No, we actually are going to try to do one every couple of weeks. We're going to change the format a little bit. Um, we actually launched or we, we released one um, earlier this week. And one of the topics that we talked a lot about are sort of analytics around detecting fraud um, or, you know, match fixing and how, you know, Rufus did some work early on that with Las Vegas sports consultants, um, certainly talking about some of the, the work that was done trying to figure out fraud and tennis matches and things like that. This is certainly something that's going to have to happen um, when sports betting becomes legal, because there is going to be a lot of scrutiny on this and feeling like you, you could have like we have machine learning and all that kind of stuff um, that allows us to identify this type of fraud will be a, a really good marketing thing for people to talk about. But no, bet the process is going to live like this is a project that both of us are committed to. Um, we'd like to have some guests on. We'd like to um, also go outside of the world of sports and look for people that can talk through this whole concept of like process driven, um, you know, process being process driven versus results driven. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. I want that to succeed. People should go listen to it. Uh, Jeff, I will see you on Friday. Yeah. We'll see you on Friday. Looking forward to it. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.